are a W-2 capitalist. You are addressing the gap between your successful, fulfilling W-2 job and building wealth for your family through real estate investing. You are ready to earn, invest, repeat. Welcome to the W-2 Capitalist Podcast. Now, let's get to work. Here's your host, Jay Helm. Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is Jay Helms. I'm the founder of this movement and podcast known as the W-2 Capitalist. Today, I have an extremely special guest, Gabriel Hamill. Am I saying that right, Gabriel? That's right, yep. I always want to make sure I'm getting guest names correctly. I probably should ask you that all fair, so I didn't sound like such a jackass right now, but anyway. Oh, you got uh, it, you got it. <laughs> Gabriel is a real estate investor who's passionate for real estate, business, and financial freedom. He has helped to amass a multi-million dollar real estate portfolio, congratulations, Thank consisting you. of single family, multi-family apartments, commercial real estate, and mobile home parks. Um, time freedom, you're a strong advocate for financial literacy through self-education. I want to make sure we dive into that, but I want to finish reading your bio here is time, freedom, family, health, wealth, and happiness are most important to you. Uh, you focus on time and energy, learning, living, and growing in these areas. Uh, Gabriel has a beautiful wife and two amazing sons with lots of energy who keep them busy at various activities. Gabriel strongly believes that being healthy, wealthy, and happy are choices, and within that right, knowledge, and more importantly, effective action can be greatly achieved. Um, so, speaking of, and I'm going to use your words, beautiful wife, you guys have this picture on social media where you're like laying on your back and she's up in the air on the beach or something like that. How long yeah. did y'all have to practice before you were able to know that? <laughs> you, you know what? We, we actually didn't practice it. So we did, uh, after the wedding, my wife wanted to do a trash the dress type thing where, oh, wow. we went, okay. yeah, we went down to the ocean and kind of played in the water and the photographer took some pictures and he just said, Hey, I had this couple that did this. Do you guys think you can do it? And we said, of course we can do it. Let's, let's do it. And, <laughs> and we tried it and he snapped some good pictures. And so that is, that is amazing. Yeah. That's how that came well, to be. Y'all look like your professional dancers or, I mean, it just, it looks, it looks awesome. So oh, I'm trying to get out. So I appreciate awesome. it. Appreciate um, it. It says a lot about you and your wife to be able to want to do that on your wedding day too. So that's, yeah. that's cool. That's really cool. So we were chatting just a little bit before I hit the record button about how long you've been investing in real estate and when you came home or when you were in the military, you exited the military, you went to a W2 world or we started getting in a little bit and I was like, hang on, let's make sure we capture all this. So walk me through your W2 experience leading up to um, your real estate investing, which you've been doing now for, for 15 years. Did I see that right? It's yeah, about that. I bought my first house in 2005. Yeah. Oh, wow. So okay. yeah, really my first experience with work, if we went way back was I had a paper out it from 12 to 16 because my parents, you know, we grew up lower middle class and they had, you know, they were working parents and there were often things that I wanted and they said, Hey, we just can't afford it. And so I worked every morning delivering papers from 12 to 16. I joined the army national guard at 17, my senior year of high school. And I was doing just like the commercials one week in a month, yeah. two weeks, two weeks a year. Uh, I always knew, of course, that there was a possibility of being deployed, but the Oregon National Guard, I was in an infantry unit. They hadn't been deployed since World War II. And nice. so, yeah, 2002, I, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and just had a huge impact on my life. I, 
I knew that college, that academia route, you know, even a high paying job was not, was really not my route. And so uh, after I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, probably around 2002. And shortly after that, in 2003, I got deployed to Kuwait and Iraq for a year. And so oftentimes just thought about the lessons in that book and thought, hey, when I come back, I'm going to start investing in real estate. And that, and that was my plan. Uh, a lot of my friends and fellow soldiers kind of laughed at the idea that you could become financially free through real estate, especially without a, a college degree or any kind of background or any money to start. And when I came back, bought my first house in 2005, bought my second house in 2006, and I opened up a small nutrition store, which eventually I had to shut down. And so when I shut the store down, I worked a bunch of odd and end jobs just out of necessity and eventually landed a minimum wage job. Uh, in a high school in the special education class. And I quickly realized, even though my heart went out to those kids, that was not my passion. And I really, really got serious about having to replace that income and wanting to replace that income as quickly as possible with a more passive flow. And in this case, it was uh, with some seller financing real estate. Yeah. So and and I want to dive into that because seller finance real estate is like a unicorn for me. So sure. I want to, I want to know your secrets because I struggle with that tremendously. But uh, back up real quick. Thank you for your service. Uh, you signed up to do a job that I was not willing to do. So um, thank you for that. Uh, the the other thing I wanted to make sure is you 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 talked about being around people and telling them that hey I want to be financially free. You want to invest in real estate and very much like. Very, several versions of my circle ago, people were laughing, saying, no, that's, that's crazy, man. Don't do it. You're going to lose your butt, you know, all this stuff. Um, it's, I, I wonder how many of those people you hang around today or if they see you in a different light, right? So you're like, I've told you so, or kind of help them, maybe educate them a little bit. And then the other thing is you mentioned your, you bought your first house in 2005, your second house in 2006, which we all now out excuse me, all now know that was at near the height of the market, right? For that cycle. Yep. yep. The same thing, man. I call it my fault start. <laughs> I yeah. bought one single family house in 2006. Uh, I wanted to end up renovating, flipping it like a live and flip, but yep. uh, ended up holding on to it for about six years as a rental after that. So yeah, yeah. I still have my first couple houses. And so oh, yeah. I, I know I gave you kind of a mouth, mouthful there at the beginning. And so we can, we can unpack that a little bit. Um, yeah. When I, when I got deployed, you know, a lot of the people that I was on the deployment with, I'm still, still in touch with. And it's neat because a lot of them had been around from the beginning and some of them are investing in real estate and have reached out and are currently investing in real estate themselves. And so yeah. that's been, that's been neat to see. I'm, I'm definitely not much of a, Hey, I told you so guy, uh, but it is, it is, it is enjoyable to see people start to take that leap. And so, yeah. um, yeah, in 2005, yeah, it was at the height of the market, but I bought, so I went to the bank and they gave me a no money down loan. So this is subprime. I sure. had no job, no income, but they gave me a loan. And so I did the same thing in 2006. And I thought to myself, Hey, this is easy. I can just go to the bank once, <laughs> yeah. once a year. They're going to give me a no money down loan and I can just do this once a year. And in a few years I'll have a decent portfolio. And you know, by 2008, I had three homes, two with no money down, one with 5% down. And mm. when I went back to the bank in 2008, they said, Hey, wait a minute, you actually need a down payment. <laughs> you, you need some income. Uh, 
In fact, they wanted me to have 30% down. And I was so spoiled with that no money down and 5% down. I thought I don't have 30% down and I would have to, to work a lot of jobs and a lot of hours to build up enough down payments to do this every single year. And so I, I just knew there had to be a better way. And so I had remembered briefly reading something about seller financing. So I got online and just started searching and uh, researching about seller financing. And I found there's just so much creativity and so much flexibility in the terms. And so that's really what my focus was. And that's, that's how I you know, bought my, my fourth property. That's how I bought my most recent property uh, just recently. So awesome. So those same tactics that worked a decade ago are still working today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and most of the people that say you can't do seller financing anymore, they just don't believe they can, or they haven't done it or they haven't tried, but it, th there's a reason you can still do it. It's, and it's because sellers who understand the advantage of selling in that, in that way, want to continue to sell that way. Yeah. I, I think my problem is, is I'm not dedicated to it enough. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, probably just as lazy as everybody else when it comes to, all right, I want to, I want to find the easy stuff, especially with having a W2 and having uh, three kids now. I mean, you know, time is of the essence. I don't have a whole lot of time to, to track these things down, but um, that's, that's my scapegoat anyway, but give me some tactics that you use that open the doors for seller financing. Cause a lot of the sellers that I talk to, um, although it, it, it's very minimal, I'm sure. And maybe that's my problem. Maybe I'm not doing enough volume, but they're just not interested, right? Maybe yep. I haven't unveiled it, uh, you know, their pain point big enough. Maybe I haven't said the right things. Um, I was talking to uh, Jake and Gino, if you're familiar with those guys this morning, and they were they were laughing at me talking about how I walked in and and, and just kind of vomited on the crowd when I needed to come in and say, hey, here, you know, give them bits and pieces before you just come in and just, and, and, and I have been told that I'm pretty direct. Uh, so I wonder if it's my delivery or if I'm just not doing enough volume. What, what, yeah. what are your, uh, give me, give me some insight. The guy who's wanting to, uh, for whatever reason, I just want to be able to check off, Hey, I've done a seller financing deal. You know? Yeah, ab absolutely. And so I think the biggest thing, and it, and it took me a few deals to realize this, uh, and the question that I get asked more than almost anything else is how do I convince or talk a seller into carrying financing? Mm. And what I've realized over the years, especially after those first couple deals reflecting back is I have never ever had to convince a seller to carry financing. Mm. And the sellers that have been willing to carry financing are sellers that already want to, they already understand the advantage of them being the bank. And so early on, I thought to myself, oh my gosh, the seller financing is amazing. It's a true win-win. It's great for the seller. It's great for me as the buyer. I need to go educate the world and all these sellers on why they should carry financing. And then I reflected and realized, you know, everyone who's carried financing, I've never had to talk them into it. They already wanted to do it. So what if I just mm -hmm. position myself and put myself in front of enough sellers that want to carry financing? And so rather than try to educate or re-educate a, a large group of people, I focused my time on building relationships and meeting sellers that were in a position and already wanted to carry the financing. And that way the conversation was a lot more, almost all, all around structure of the deal itself, rather than trying to educate them on what seller financing was. So I'd say that's the biggest piece is just get in front of enough sellers that already understand. That's a, that's an amazing tip. Yeah, it's, it's, so you're not actually trying to sell them on the idea. You're just trying to find the ones that already know about the idea 
and want to move forward. Right. Correct. So yep. once you find that person, cause obviously they're, they're, they want to be uh, comfortable with you. Right. Because yep. essentially they're coming to, they're becoming the bank during this situation. How do you build that trust relationship? Is it just time? Is it experience? And for people who don't have either one, how do you, how do you get over that hurdle? Right. Yeah. You know, now it's, it's a little of both. It's, it's the experience, you know, and obviously starting out, if you don't have experience yet, it's that catch 22. Right. And, and for me, it was, I was scouring Craigslist, just typing in keywords like seller financing, owner financing, owner terms. And I just started having conversation with people. And what I found is a lot of these sellers, these weren't sellers that wanted to hire an agent. So these were a lot of for sale by owner properties. And so calling them up and then getting FaceTime with them, you know, sitting down with them, meeting them and really just having that FaceTime. And it became a lot more human to human, you know, person to person rather than write an offer on a piece of paper that my agent presents to their agent and their agent presents to them, which feels very transactional. Yes. Uh, being able to sit down with them, you know, uh, you know, for lunch or at their house was a lot more human. And I think naturally that created, uh, and, and really creates this environment of, of trust. And then as, as you go, you build up a good track record. And a lot of these sellers have multiple properties they want to sell you. And then of course you can kind of leverage these past transactions and future deals to say, Hey, look, I've purchased properties in this way before I have a good track record. Here's some references. And, and that's been a way to kind of build it past the beginning as well. Yeah, that is the, the catch 22, right? So um, that's interesting. Hey, real quick, I, I kind of skipped over this part, but you live in um, Eugene, Oregon. Correct. Do you invest just in, in Oregon as well? Or do you, are you other places? Yeah, all my properties other than one are, uh, with, are in Oregon. So most okay. of my properties are within, I'd say, 15 minutes from me. But then okay. I have several properties about, you know, 30 minutes and an hour south as well. And then okay. I have one property in Pennsylvania. And that is kind of a, <laughs> kind of a long story. We don't have... <laughs> uh, the look on your face when you said that there's got to be a story uh behind it so let's dive into that man so why pennsylvania <laughs> it's not it's not that great of a story and i get asked that all the time i always get asked hey do you only invest in oregon or all your problems yeah. in oregon it's like yeah all but one yeah. uh, you know it was just a timing thing i i i do know almost no turnkey it's the only turnkey type property i did yeah uh, i had met a guy at a conference and he had a house and it was a cash flowing market. I had yeah. the money at the time. It just, it just made sense at the time. And <laughs> I'll probably never do that type of deal again. I'm not opposed to investing out of state. I think it's about building a strong team there. And yeah. where, where I live locally, I really know the market and more importantly, the sub market. And so I'm really comfortable here with the market itself, but also just naturally building relationships and a, a network where I live. And that's, that's where my focus is currently. Yeah. And you don't self-manage now, right? You've got a team that manages those for you. Yeah. I have a third, third party property management. Correct. Yeah. No, I'm with you on the uh, long distance stuff. You've got, you've got to be able to establish yourself. And um, what we've been doing here recently and is leaning on some relationships we have of people who are in those areas and, and know that market and been studying it. But I'm with you. If I'm buying something, just me, it's going to be, right here. And I don't, and for no other reason, I mean, I've sold a, uh, we had a duplex that we owned for three years, never stepped foot into it. We sold it this year, never stepped foot into it ever. 
uh, even when we were buying it. Um, had my home inspector go over. I didn't go into the property. It was just one of those quirky things. But, and I never drove, I mean, I rarely drove by it. I don't know. It was one of those things where it was, if I had the luxury to do it if I wanted to. I mean, literally it was five minutes from my house, but I just never did, you know? So that kind of warmed me up to think, okay, I can do this long distance as long as I have those team members in place, which is crucial, yeah. crucial. And, and there's, and there's no, you know, one right way. There's, I've met people that have been really successful investing yep. in their backyard and I've met people that only invest out of state and they've done really well. And so it's just, it's finding what works well for you. And, and for me in this case, it's, it's really just building a network around my local market. And I yeah. feel very, very comfortable there. And also uh, the ability to grow within my market as well. Very cool. What's your portfolio look like today? You, I know you kind of do a little bit of everything, but what, uh, what is the makeup of it today? Yeah, right now I currently hold a little over 170 units and it's a mix of, I have two mobile home parks. Those are my most recent purchases. And then it's kind of a mix of single families. I started with smaller multifamily twos and threes and fours and sixes. I have some apartment complex and some, some mixed use commercial where it's ground floor commercial and apartments up top. And so right now my focus is value add multifamily and more specifically mobile home parks. I think there's an opportunity there. I, I really enjoy uh, looking at and, and analyzing those deals. What is it that, um, so two things, are these all properties that you own personally? Do you have partners invested in the deal as well? Or, and so second follow-up is what is attract, attractive for you for mobile home parks? Sure. Um, I don't have partners on the mobile home parks. I do have some partners on a couple of the smaller, medium-sized apartments. Yeah. And with the attraction of the mobile home parks, I've always been a value investor as far as looking for properties that are poorly managed, under-rented, and have deferred maintenance. And those are kind of my three, my three things. I want that upside potential. I always structure the financing to make, it, make the property cash flow the way it currently sits. So I'm never relying on appreciation or never relying on increased cash flow. That's just kind of a bonus. But with, with mobile home parks, it fits that criteria. There's a lot of parks that are poorly managed, under-rented, and deferred maintenance. And so that value at opportunity, for instance, on the first mobile home park I purchased, rents had not been increased in four and a half years. Mm. And, and, and even with a small increase, it's still below market. Utilities had not been billed back, which spread out over 40 some units <laughs> is not a lot for the tenants, but it's a lot for me. And so right. billing, those, billing that back, uh, improving, the, improving the, the park, it, creates it creates a situation where you're adding value to the tenants and you're also adding monetary value to the park itself uh, for for future growth yeah so um one of the things that you are, are it was in your bio right is that uh, let me bring it back health healthy being healthy wealthy and happy are choices yep um have you ever have you ever met somebody that would didn't want to be happy by choice. Explain, well, just explain that to me. Sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah. That was a I, bad way to ask that question, but <laughs> no, I, I thought you were going to ask some, uh, something different. Uh, but okay. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to ask if I've met anyone that hasn't agreed and I have, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think it comes to, it's, it's a mindset thing. You yeah. know, I think that it is a choice to choose how we live our life 
And yes, there are outside circumstances and we are all born into something that we don't have control over. But I do believe that we are and have the ability to decide how our present state is and what our life is like going into the, into the future. And so I think happiness, yes, is, is a choice. I think being healthy is a choice, taking actions every day to be healthy and improve health. And, and same with being wealthy. There's a lot of people that will say, you know, so-and-so is, is lucky, but they go and they go and watch what they've done in their life and they aren't wealthy because of luck. It's typically because they put in the work. And that's the same thing with being healthy. It's the same thing with being happy. They've spent a lot of time learning and studying and being in those, in those states. And so, uh, yeah, I absolutely think those are, those are choices. And I have had people, people argue with me, especially on the, on the happy, <laughs> on the happy part, yeah. which, which I always find interesting, but I do think it's a choice. Yeah. I, I would imagine those people have not consumed, uh, Jocko Willing's extreme ownership book, or yeah. maybe they disagree with it all wholeheartedly because, uh, I'm, you're shaking your head. Like you, you've consumed that one. You've read that one. I have, yes. So, um, that was a big slap in the face for me. Um, you know, and it was one of those things it, it, and it's one, it is one of those things where I look at somebody and I can say, okay, that guy has victim mentality. Right. And we were all, we all have those people around us. Uh, but it's easier to point out them. <laughs> but if you sure. look in the mirror, you're like, maybe just maybe I'm a little bit of that too. But that book really opened my eyes to think, I think it's him, uh, Jocko that says everything that happens to you is because of you. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm like that again, mindset, it just clicked for me. I'm like, okay, I'm, if I'm going to take credit for everything, I've got to take responsibility for the bad stuff too. Right. Yeah, And, so. and, and it's, you know, it's up to us to choose how we react to a situation. Yes. We can't control how others act, but we can definitely control how we react to a situation. You know, someone, someone hits your car, you can get all pissed off and they cut you off in traffic. You can get all pissed off. They've already done it. It's already yeah. happened. So it's, <laughs> you know, not saying it's always easy, but it's still our, you know, our responsibility to choose how we react to the situation. Yeah. And funny you mentioned that I went to Lowe's earlier and for whatever reason, these two people were just walking down the middle of the, the aisle. I'm trying to find a parking spot. And I just, I was being a smart ass and I just stopped, you know, and I'm like, you guys could have moved over, and, but you're right. It was just one of those things where it already happened. What just let it go. They were, you know, they were being considerate, but I was also being rude. Sure. Um, so it's, and one of those things too, is I used to beat myself up over that stuff pretty bad um, because I wanted to be perfect. Right. I had this perfectionism sure. syndrome in me and uh, I finally learned that progress is greater than perfection. Right. As long as you're making yourself a better version of yourself than you were yesterday, you did a good thing. So I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think we both have kids. And so that's an often reminder that we're not anywhere <laughs> near perfect. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. And, and I don't, you said you got two boys. Um, yeah. So when you get that little girl, then you'll really start to pay attention. <laughs> we're, we're all done. We're done at two. We're done at two. That's I, what I'm. I've made that official. Okay. <laughs> uh, but you're right. They're always watching, man. You never, it's always amazing how they'll pick things up. When oh, yeah. you think they're not paying attention, you think they're consumed by whatever iPad or cartoon that's on. And then you hear them repeating what you just said. <laughs> they're like, yeah, that's not, that's not good. They're, they're awesome. Um, so financial literacy. 
it's a big thing that you want to talk about. Uh, let's, let's dive into that a little bit because I agree with you. I think financial literacy is a big problem in the U S um, and, and part of that is leading, not just that piece, but part of that is leading us to, uh, we're more likely going to homeschool our kids, at least for the first several years. Um, but talk to me about why you think that's such a big problem and how, how do we as parents, uh, battle that, right? Yeah, I, I think I think the biggest problem is it's just finance and financial literacy. It's just it's not taught in schools at all. And so for me, I think the reason that Rich Dad Poor Dad just resonated with me so much is it's be, it's something the content in there was something that I desired and didn't even realize I was seeking after. It was something school was just not my environment. And for some people, mm. it is. They learn well in that environment. And for me, I felt like there was something more, something that it just wasn't giving me. I didn't have this natural attraction to, to being in school and going and getting a job and working for the rest of my life. I, I was in school for the wrestling and for the social aspect of it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and that's, and that's why I was there. And so when I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, it really did change my life to go, wow, there, okay, there's something else this makes sense to take finances into my own hands, to not rely on a job, to not rely on some other company to, to take care of me. So it was very empowering to know, hey, there is another way. And it's a way that creates more freedom in your life. You're not a slave to a job. You're not yeah. a slave to somebody else. And so I don't expect the school system to, to change anytime soon or to teach that. I think that a lot of that's going to come from people, people like you do in these podcasts and the books and people out there on, on social media uh, showing and that there's another, there's another way. And so I think a lot of that learning is going to come from home. I don't expect the school system to teach my kids about financial freedom. I don't expect them yeah. to teach them about the happiness. I, you know, there's some things that they can learn in school that are amazing. And I think a lot of it's going to be at home and in the environment that we as parents put them in. You're, uh, how old are your kids? They're nine and 11. Okay. So you already teaching them financial literacy. What are you, and what are you using to teach them? Yeah, they, we, we have a open dialogue. They know the difference between an asset and a liability. Nice. You know, we, we, nine we, and 11. Awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we go driving for dollars and we, we point out properties. We talk about, you know, what's, not just assets and liabilities, but what appreciation means, how to structure, uh, how to structure a real estate deal. We, we played awesome. Monopoly over the weekend with some guys that I'm in a mastermind with, and my son partnered up with another guy, which I've never <laughs> seen on Monopoly. They partnered up before we got around the board and you know, bought a hotel before the rest of us could, could uh, you know, get around the board. No, and wait a minute. They partnered up. That, I don't know if that's in the rules though, right? I've never seen it. I've never seen it. <laughs> The rest of us, the rest of us, you know, weren't in a good spot like five minutes in. <laughs> one of them had two properties. One had one. They decided that instead of selling them to each other, they would go in on a partnership. The other one would buy a hotel and they would split the profits. You know, that kid's going somewhere. Uh, <laughs> I mean, think about it. It's not in the rules, but it's not not in the rules, right? There we so go. It, it, right. Can, it can go either way. That's incredible. Um, yep. You mentioned uh, mastermind. Tell me a little bit about that, because I, I host a mastermind, uh, the W two Capitalist Mastermind. Um, it's a virtual. I mean, we I have weekly meetings just like this. Uh, but tell me, tell me what you're involved in 
Uh, yeah, I, I joined a mastermind about a year ago called GoBundance. Yeah. And yeah, if you're Wait, familiar with it, the, the host of Bigger Pockets, Brandon and David Green, they're, they're part of the, the GoBundance tribe. And what attracted me to it is they had talked about it. When I looked it up, their tagline was uh, a tribe of healthy, wealthy, generous men choosing to live epic lives. And I thought, yes, this is what I'm looking for. Yeah. Because some of these masterminds, you know, they're, they're very surface or it's only financial driven. And this was a group of men that, you know, they wanted to improve in all different areas of their life. And so this last year has been an amazing year, meeting so many amazing people. And, you know, every event, it's, it's a room of extremely successful people without the ego. You know, mm. it's, everybody is there uh, willing to be vulnerable, willing to grow, willing to learn. And they're all looking to improve and share their knowledge. And so it's been a really, it's been a really neat year to be a part of something like that. That is extremely cool. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've, uh, I'm familiar with them. I, I'm trying to think of, this is going to sound bad. I don't know if they ever listened to it, but uh, one of the guys who helped found the GoBundance uh, movement. He wrote a book. Oh, a it's couple of, probably Pat Hyben or... That's it, Pat Hyben. Okay. Yeah. Um, he's on my list of folks I want to have on the podcast. So um, probably should remember his name if that's yeah. the case. But, and- and David Osborne. It was David Osborne yeah. and Pat Hyben were the two guys that that started GoBundance. I didn't realize David Osborne was part of that. He is. That's awesome. Okay. Um, well, look. So, what are your plans? You know, we're we're recording this a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving. Twenty nineteen is is essentially a, a close for us. I kind of take the rest of the year and I focus on. Okay because we're going to do vacation, but not vacation, but go see family. Uh, we don't really live close to our relatives or anything like that. So we'll, we'll take some time to travel and kind of decompress and it gives me a lot of time to focus on what we want to do for 2020, 2019. We did the same thing. Although I went into 2019 thinking we're just going to focus on the W2 capitalist brand. We're not going to buy anything. We're not going to sell anything. And here we sold off half of our portfolio and started <laughs> investing into 330 units or something like that. So um, needless to say, we didn't stick to our plan, <laughs> but it's still a good exercise for us to go through. What Do you do anything like that? And, and what are your plans? Are you already thinking about 2020 and what you guys are wanting to accomplish? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely set different goals and such. And I, I plan on, um, you know, buying, buying more property this year before the end of 2019 if, if the opportunity is there. And so, you know, it used to be that I used to make offers. I used to make offers on Thanksgiving strategically and on Christmas day strategically. (laughs) Uh, I'm a little pickier and and what I'm buying these days are a little bit different than what I was buying then. Uh, back then it was, it was single family, uh, fixers and I'd make, I'd make offers on those days and, and did well there. So yeah, I'm going to continue to buy. I think it's always a good time if you to buy, if you buy right. And so, I am just continually working to expand my network and meet people. I think that relationships is really undervalued and there's a lot of value in just knowing people and letting people know what you're looking for and building those relationships. You know, some of those might just become friendships. Some of those might be business opportunities in the future, but I think that relationships are are so important. Yeah. Completely agree with you. If I look back at every deal that I've closed um, it's because of a relationship. It was yep. a relationship with a broker. It was a relationship with a partner, uh, with a banker, um, realtor. It's all about that. I, I think you're right. I think there, there is some power 
the power of relationships is, is truly undervalued. Um, and I try to, as part of my weekly to-do list is to help build those relationships. Um, so that's, that's awesome to hear you say that. What do you think the, you know, there's a lot of, um, we've been on a good run, as you could say, <laughs> with the yeah. market. Uh, there's a lot of skepticism out there about where it's headed, what's going to, what's going to happen. You know, my crystal ball is telling me one thing. Um, what do you think we're going, especially with it next year being an election year? Maybe that doesn't even uh, come into play for you. But uh, what, yeah. where do you think we're headed? Or where, did, where do you think the Oregon market's headed? Since you sure. Know that sure. I, I don't care if the market goes up or down or sideways or in any, any direction. So I've always stuck to the principle of cash flow first. And so even in 2005, 6, 7, when that was a, a peak market, I yeah. bought homes below value. I made sure they cash flowed. I never relied on appreciation. I look at appreciation second. And yes, appreciation can definitely build wealth, but I've never relied on that. So it's cash flow first. So when I buy a property, whether it was my first one or my most recent one and everything in between, it's cash flow first. And that keeps things pretty darn recession proof. I don't care yeah. if my properties go up and down in value on paper as long as they cover the mortgage and I'm cash flow positive. Yeah, and I'm with you there too. Um, here is the super conservative side of me because I don't want to have any vacancies in these properties. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of, I'm correlating and probably not correctly, but I correlate a downturn in the market also means a downturn in the economy. So people might lose their jobs. And I don't think it's going to be as bad as it was in 07, 08 in, in those couple of years. Do you correlate those two or do you, do you like, do you buy in an asset class that you feel like you're more um, recession proof than anything? Does that you make know, sense? With, yeah. With the mobile home parks, I feel like they're very recession proof. You're not going to find, you know, many places that you can rent something less than a mobile home pad. Right. And so for that reason, mobile home parks are, are quite recession proof, but even in 2008, nine, 10, 11, even after the, you know, the downturn and the subprime and people were losing jobs and their houses were going back to the bank. I never had more vacancy because of it. In fact, a lot of the buyer pool shrunk. Mm. And so those buyers were actually becoming renters. Tenants. And so yeah. I never, yeah, tenants, I never saw increased vacancy or even decreased rent because of the economy. I did watch people walk away from their homes who didn't need to, because on paper it showed that the property was worth less yeah. They truly didn't yeah. need to. And so, you know, I held tight, continued to buy, and those properties continued to cash flow. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, that, you know, I'm kind of sitting back. I'm with you. I, I don't focus on appreciation. It's nice at the end of the day, but it's cash flow is the most important for us to. Um, I'm sitting back, though. I have trouble finding deals that cash flow because sure. of how expensive everything is. Um, I, I've owned a couple mobile homes. Uh, I actually still have one in my portfolio now. Uh, it's just one of those things where I, I don't, I don't know for whatever reason, I'm just not, I'm just not turned on by it, I guess, is if that makes sense. But sure. And, and I think I'm getting emotionally tied to the deal and I'm lo not looking at the numbers, which is a no, no. Right. Yeah. Um, that's, that's awesome. That's incredible. Well, uh, look, I know we're pushing up on time. A super positive guy, Gabriel. Dude, and I'm and I'm gonna say this, and I don't mean it in an odd way. I know you're married. I'm married. You have an sure. amazing smile. Oh, dude. thank you. Uh, 
I've actually been looking at uh, like Smile Direct or Candid, trying to get them to sponsor the the podcast. So, oh, okay. okay. And 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 do some swap of services uh, to get this gap in my my teeth fixed. But uh, we'll see. My wife's gonna kill me when she hears that. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe it's part of your brand. Just keep it. You know. Is it? No. I mean, it's I don't know. Just, I don't know. I think Michael Strahan has that covered, and he's good. You know. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I appreciate um, it, man. I appreciate the kind words. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it definitely, uh, helps, helps. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I noticed things like that cause mine bothered me. So it's probably time for sure. me to do something about it. Um, before I get any more awkward on you, <laughs> how can, how can people find out more about you and what's the best way for them to connect with you? Yeah, I'm I'm most active on Instagram and you okay. can find me at Gabriel Hamill or Gabriel R. Hamill. And I also have Facebook, Gabriel Hamill, and also hamillinvestments.com is my website. And there's some information there to get in touch with me. Perfect. I will make sure I link to all of those in the show notes. Awesome. Uh, man, I appreciate your time. We'll see yeah, you soon. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Hey, right, buddy. See you. All right. Bye. <laughs>